obviously you have to come back and acclimate and become an efficient member of your own hometown. But if you can never let that travel die, if you can sort of let that curiosity and that excitement about place live on in your travels at home, then, then your journey never really ends. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is the final remix of my Vagabond's Way Online book club, which has been taking place each month since the beginning of the year. It's also the final episode of season five of Deviate with Rolf Potts. I know most of you don't really pay attention to which podcast season it is. I know I don't when listening to other people's podcasts. So I guess this is my way of saying that Deviate will be a little bit different next year. I'll be traveling almost full time in 2024, which means new episodes will debut each month instead of every other week. You'll hear Tim Ferriss on Deviate Season 6, as well as Andrew McCarthy and Alistair Humphreys and many other returning and first-time guests. There won't be any more Book Club Remix episodes in Season 6, but I will have one final Vagabond's Way Book Club session on Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. For more information on how to sign up for that online Book Club session, check out the show notes at rolfpotscom deviate. In today's episode, the book club participants and I talk about the role imagination plays in travel, not just in planning the journey, but in living the journey. We talk about travel rituals and how they serve the journey, and we talk about the challenges inherent in bringing the mindset of travel back home. We talk about the way the world's monuments encourage us to savor life, even as they bear witness to the relative shortness of life. A reminder that The Vagabond's Way just came out in paperback and makes a great gift for the travelers in your life this holiday season. Its 366 one-page travel meditations cover each day of the year, and January is a great time to start reading it. My first book, Vagabonding, of course, has also been a popular gift ever since it came out over 20 years ago. All right, today's discussion begins just after moderator Luke Richardson asked me what it means to be vulnerable to a place as the journey stretches on. Let's listen in. Leaving yourself uh, vulnerable to your travels just means allowing yourself to be surprised, regardless of what you planned on experiencing as a traveler. Um, slowing down, and, and sometimes I'm guilty of, of having such a packed experience. I spent three weeks in Kenya this summer. And I think sometimes I didn't plan enough rest days just because sometimes um, it's good to sit still and let the place move through you as much as you move through the place. Um, and I think as we get past those early days or weeks or months in the journey, it's good to uh, to allow yourself uh, to be open to things that you didn't expect to find and really to let a place surprise you and let you be surprised by a place. And I suppose it's also important to think about that in the, in the planning stage of a, of a, trip isn't it because i've spoken to many people who've you know have, have gone to new york and have got as an example and have got a spreadsheet of things in two hour slots to do this in the morning of the monday and do this from 2 p.m until 4 p.m or whatever yeah no and, and nothing against that i've met some spreadsheet travelers who are, who are actually pretty <laughs> good at immersing themselves uh but I, I think just as long as you don't let that constrain what you experience, um, as as long as you, and if you're a planner, maybe you, you should put some rest days or a big question mark on your spreadsheet. You know, basically, I'm not going to even know. I'm going to leave Tuesdays and Thursdays for just wandering around and, and letting a place surprise me because I think... Um, and, and again, my travels this summer, I was in Kenya for three weeks and I was just, I was a seven day a week traveler and I, I don't regret it, 
But um, there are some times when I was just so exhausted, I wished I had planned a little bit more, uh, a little bit more rest time in with my uh, with my activity time. Uh, and I think I feel like I say this every time. There's no silver bullet. There's no perfect way to do things. But it's really just a matter of knowing that the place is going to offer so much more than you could have planned for. So whatever you put in that spreadsheet at the outset of a trip, you know, if it's too packed with things at the exclusion of surprise, then um, then uh, you're not going to have a full and deep trip like you could have had. On October 1st, you quote Kate Harris, travel is one part geography and nine parts imagination. I love that. Can you explain why it sort of resonates with you? Yeah, well, I think even if we even if we pretend that it isn't imagination, even if, even if we're staunch realists in the way that we feel like we should travel, um, travel encompasses imagination. I was just, uh, you're in Nottingham, England. I was in the Cotswolds earlier this year. And it's amazing how much of my expectations in England are tied into watching public television when I was a kid, you know, like Doctor Who, although, you know, Doctor Who is a science fiction film that isn't literally in England. But um, it, it was funny how even in my 50s, it's hard to get away from the imaginative person I was at age 12, for example. And so when I was in, um, I think the example I give in the book is, is being at Lake Mananjau in, in Sumatra and just deciding, I, I, I saw an island in the middle of a lake and I was going to swim to the middle of the lake and um, and have an adventure on that. And it, in a way, there wasn't any objective reason for me to do that besides the fact that I sort of loved swimming and Indiana Jones movies when I was 12, right? And so that was a purely imaginative thing. There was no objective reason why I should swim to this island in the middle of this lake in uh, in Indonesia. Um, but it was it was cool. And it ended up being very a very deeply Indonesian experience. I met some fishermen, uh, ethnic Meninkabao uh, fishermen there who, who were just sort of confused as to why I swam out there. But um, I think imagine I followed my imagination in a very adolescent way. And it, I ended up having a, a cool experience that I couldn't have planned for had I not just decided to jump in the water and start swimming for that island. Further on in that month, then October the 5th, and we'll just move through it chronologically. As far as the things that I've pulled out, you play with the idea that travel offers not freedom from, but freedom to. And I like that idea. How sort of explain that a bit if you're if you're able. Sort of how, what do you mean by that? Well, I think when we plan our travels, so often we're thinking about getting away. We're thinking about escape. We're getting away from our our boring neighbors and our boring routines and and familiar surroundings and um having the freedom from all the things that constrain us at home. When in fact, once a journey begins, I think it's actually the freedom to do things, the freedom to try new foods, the freedom to just, and this is something very personal for me, to be less of an introvert, to just to just talk to people for the pleasure of talking to them and being less self-contained with the idea of being open to other people. It's that freedom to sort of expand your comfort zone and expand your social world and even sort of expand your curiosity about a place, um, that that's the sort of freedom that that really is the rewarding kind of freedom on the road. And that's the stuff you tend to remember uh, quite succinctly, you know, the freedom to discover new ways of being in the world. I know one thing that happened when uh, when I was traveling through northern Kenya, when Kiki and I were traveling through northern Kenya earlier this year, we're in a very remote area, and as we were driving towards this northwestern part of the country, we, we passed these camel caravans, um, 
with these uh, young ethnic guys who were maybe like 15 years old. They were called warriors. Our guide called them warriors, which doesn't necessarily mean they fight in wars, but it just means that they're circumcised but not married. They're young men sort of going through their coming-of-age experience. And we actually picked up one of them and we took them and they, we saw them working in the camel wells. They were digging in this in this riverbed to, to find water for their camels. And just how self-possessed these 15-year-old boys were, that they were doing the same thing that their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers had done. And they didn't have a lot. In fact, they were nearly naked and they were, you know, working in this unglamorous uh thing of walking for days and days with a, a, a pack of camels. But it made me realize just how, um, I, I guess I learned a little bit about what it's like to be um, a Rindia, an ethnic Rindia Kenyan person and to to embrace your adolescence in a way that's, that accords with tradition uh, in a way we don't have the United States. In the United States, we're individualists and we, we really grab onto the idea of doing whatever we want when we want. But seeing these boys who were living this traditional life and seem very proud and excited to be walking their camels and then watering their camels, that was a cool thing to see. I could imagine. I could imagine. And what a genuine thing to see as well. I, I know we talk a lot about it in this. We've talked a lot in this group about sort of pseudo culture that is put on for the tourists in a way that yeah. it's constructed in perhaps a way that it wasn't constructed before just because we think that that's what it should be like you know that um the the camel handlers in Egypt should wear the robes that they've always worn and seeing one in a Manchester United football top is somehow not the right thing but actually to see that in an, in an organic way is 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 powerful in itself yeah, and one thing that occurred to me in Kenya, there's actually villages you can go. They're tourist villages, and they're fine. And see people like, um, there's a place called Umoja where um, the Samburu people, it's a Samburu village, but it's for tourists, right? And so they're just used, they sing for you, and they they sell uh, they sell souvenirs and stuff. And they're not inauthentic Samburu people, but they're used to tourists, and they sort of perform, it, it sort of allows busloads of tourists to come in and have an experience with the village that is somewhat authentic but without disrupting life in the village too much. Um, what we realized the further we got into the Samburu land parts of Kenya is that these villages are everywhere. They just don't happen to have a tourist industry, right? So I think that that traditional way of life from the tourist bus experience is okay. But if you slow down in a certain sense, you'll realize that... Um, that that traditional lifestyle, or at least a semi-traditional lifestyle, is available in different places. And oftentimes we would find brothers, like some Buru brothers, one of whom was dressed in a very traditional way, and one of whom was wearing that Manchester United so uh, soccer jersey. Literally, I think they were, they, they were wearing football jerseys. And oftentimes families will send one boy to a traditional school, and the other brother will, um, and, I mean, to a modern school, and the other brother will live the traditional life and herd the goats or whatever. And that's just a way to sort of diversify the options that the family has. And I wouldn't have known that in Kenya had I not um, stumbled outside of the tourist village and realized that, the, that there are also some Buru villages that have a, a really interesting dynamic happening there. So again, it's an argument, something that I found by accident, but an argument for going slow and, and really um, getting beyond what is pre presented for you as tourists. One of the more poignant moments of October for me was, and you, you talk about their attending life events on the road, you know, family uh, weddings or funerals that you might be walking past or whatever. Uh, one of one of here was your meditation on, um, oh, what was it? The, the moments to mortality. I think sometimes as travelers, we allow ourselves to look at our lives as a whole. You know, we're sort of brought out of our routines and we we're, we allow ourselves to see 
um, life in a more existential way and sort of think about what's important and to enjoy these little moments like weddings that you get invited to in Italy or just, you know, a, a cup of coffee that you drink on the square with someone you don't know before and realize how precious they are. And, and then also, um, you know, just how evanescent they can be. I think the ex the example I give in the book is finding this shipwreck on the coast of Namibia, and it didn't even look, even didn't even look like a ship anymore. It just was a pile of garbage. And I realized I, when I looked it up later, it was that shipwreck happened the week I was born. And so, <laughs> the the idea that my life has has progressed to the point where a shipwreck that ran aground the year I was born doesn't look like a ship anymore, but time and chance happen to us all. That's a, that's a biblical idea that I think I use in one of the epigraphs. But I think travel just puts you into situations where um, you you understand that that life is is uh, is a temporary thing, and so you really have to embrace the moments that you have. And um, probably more tourists go to a place like Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris than local people. But in doing that, in realizing that, oh, I guess Chopin wasn't you know, hasn't been dead for that long compared to other people um, in the cemetery, um, you really start to think about. The shortness of life, and I know that sounds grim, but, mm. but in, in realizing the shortness of life, you realize the, the preciousness of each day. And I think travel is a great, great reminder of, of that process. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I think the sort of age of some of the things that you see as well, you know, if, if you think about someone like Chopin, for example, who you think of as, as a very old person, you know, the pyramids were still in there it was still 2000 or 4000 3000 whatever years old when he was there you know in in the time of one of these great monuments that 200 years is is, is nothing you know it, it, it really is it, it makes it is that impermanence i think it's, it's moving in a way yeah no i talk about the roman tourists from 2000 years ago the the roman tourists around the time of christ who the, the rich ones would go to egypt and they would talk about how ancient the pyramids were they you know they talked as if their their moment in history was the only moment in history and they were just fascinated by how old and run down these pyramids were when in fact um yeah the pyramids are just really super old i mean going to india is another exercise in uh, in the passage of time, because a lot of those Hindu rituals predate the pyramids, you know, that, that, that religion is being practiced, that culturally there are aspects that are actively practiced in India that are 5,000 years or older. And so it, it's humbling, but I think it's important. Um, I don't know how it is for you in England, but in the United States, you know, we sort of see ourselves as a young country. We always talk about our loss of innocence when in fact, yeah, human, human culture has been around for a long time and travel is a great, um, chance to experience, um, how old human culture is. And even like going to Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, that's like the new cemetery. The old cemeteries, they dug up and threw all the bones in the catacombs because they were running out of space to build new buildings. And, you know, just the, the these 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 visions and ironies of mortality um, are something that I think you have more time to contemplate as a traveler. To sort of change tempo a little bit then, in um, in October, on October the 14th, you conclude that, um, or you say that, uh, it's wise, and I think I've, I've actually written it down here because I found it quite interesting. It's wise to keep in mind that even as we post our adventure photos, that these experiences are made safe and enjoyable by true adventurers. Uh, and I sort of like that idea that you're on a, you might be on a mountain trail in the in the Pyrenees or or the Andes or wherever, and 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 you're thinking that you're you know really really strong and brave for being up there, but in fact you're on a well worn trail made made safe by all the brave people that have gone before you. Yeah. 
But this is something I've I've sort of touched on this idea uh, that adventure isn't purely a physical thing since vagabonding. I'm in vagabonding. I talk about, yeah, you know, you can, you can go rappelling down a mountain or, you know, rafting down a river, but at the end of the day, just taking a bus to a town that you don't know about can be as much of an adventure. A lot of people got mad about that. I've, I've had over the, over the decades, uh, reviewers are like, they're angry. They want this adventure to somehow, I mean, the, the, the whitewater rafting or rock climbing to certify their own importance. And that's fine. You know, I, I think it's cool to have physical adventures. In fact, uh, Kiki and I climbed Mount Kenya six, over 16,000 feet this summer. And that was fun. And we were really happy with it. But our guide was this 23 year old Kenyan dude who's climbed the mountain 16 times and is much fitter than us. And so in a sense, he is, uh, his accomplishment. Uh, is a hundred times what what ours did that we were able to make it up the mountain with his help with his expertise and I think this happens all over the world that we adventure travel is a category in the tourism industry and it's great but at the end of the day um, we can be humble about that you know that, that basically we're doing something cool we're getting uh, some insights we're able to see Mount Kenya in a really cool way in fact a hundred years ago very few people had climbed Mount Kenya. But it's because of people like James or the porters that we had in our, our climb that make it possible for us to do it in a way that's safe and enjoyable. Um, and if and if when it comes down to Instagram, I haven't posted those Instagram photos yet, but if we only put pictures of Kiki and me in those photos, it's not doing justice to um, to all the people who helped us get to the top, in, including in this situation, six porters and a guide. So uh, it was nice. In fact, you touch upon this in another month, don't you? I can't remember if it is in October or September where you said, you had a guide who was an expert in making himself, taking himself out of the pictures. Whenever a camera appeared, he'd be the one taking the picture or he'd merge into the bushes at the background or step behind a tree or something so that he wasn't, he was invisible to to, to you, to, to the to the, to the viewer, I suppose, to someone outside of that situation. Yeah, that was my guide in the, in the Mintaway Islands. Um, that he, he, had, he had been a guide long enough. He wasn't that old. I think he was in his late 20s. But I think he realized that um, his clients didn't like anything modern in the camera, including him, you know, because he wore a ball cap and a t-shirt and stuff. And, um, August was his name. And, uh, and so he just, there, there's a video, I put it on Instagram actually, where I'm, I'm showing the traditional mental Y guy, you know, crushing sago pulp with his feet, but there's a red water bottle in the background and August, his hand darts in and takes it out of the frame of the camera. I didn't even notice it until later. It's like, August, you're the best, man. You're that you just have you've traveled with enough Western tourists to know that Western tourists want to they want to show pictures of themselves being in this pure environment. And that water bottle made the Mentawai Islands less seem less pure. So yeah, I actually I, I guides, souvenir vendors, there's all sorts of people who are adjacent to the tourist industry that I have a ton of respect for, just because they not only know the places that they're showing you, but they sort of know our behaviors and cliches as travelers and tourists as well. And so it's it's uh, it's fun to see. Curtis Rolf, thank you so much gratitude for your books. Um, inspired me to have this experience right now I'm having in the Delta Southwest Alaska, working as a nurse vaccinating the children, working in the villages, uh, hanging out with the locals. So thank you very much uh, for you and everybody else here that really makes these experiences real and reinforces how important it is. So thank you. Uh, so my question is, um, what do I have here? So part of traveling, obviously, is that we get face-to-face uh, -face with these experiences that we would never expect when we're open to them. And we allow them 
And once we allow them, I feel that we just attract more of those experiences because it becomes a mindset. But when we go back home, we have a structured nine to five schedule. We have our environments are expected. We know pretty much the outline of our cities and the people around us. So it's, it's a little bit more difficult to slip into that mindset of letting these experiences flow. So how can we come back home, bring those experiences and that mindset um, back home? Well, um, I like that you use the word mindset and I want to get back to that. First off, I want to say, it's awesome that you're in Alaska. I have never been to Alaska, actually. So I've been so many places in the world, but I have yet to go to uh, to the 50th state of the U.S. So that's cool that you're having, a, a, sounds like a working adventure there. And someday I want to go there myself. Um, I, I think your question sort of goes back to mindset. And since, ever since I wrote Vagabonding more than 20 years ago, I keep going back to the idea that travel is about mindset. You know, you can do all sorts of you can make different plans and you can do different packing lists, but the mindset is the most important thing. And so I think it's really a matter of, of sort of importing that travel mindset to home and sort of finding ways to be curious in the way that you are curious on the road, on the road at home. And it's interesting how little you find, you discover that you know about your own home place. Um, my wife and I took a road trip, uh, Couple counties over the, uh, a few weeks ago, and it was just a beautiful part of uh, of Kansas, of this uh, unsexy part of America, and it was cool to see. Um, I also go on walks around here. I, I've said, and I think has been echoed in this uh, book club before. Walk until your day becomes interesting. People love that phrase. Um, that is something that absolutely applies at home. Um, come back and just walk away that you other that you otherwise might have driven and it's funny how how you can surprise yourself even at home with a going down a street that you've that you've passed over again and again and then also uh, food is a great way to chase down uh, experiences at home you know especially if you've been to a foreign country try to find that foreign country's food at home there's an asian market in salina kansas which is not far from where i live and um even though i think it's run by laotians it's sort of pan asian in character and so it's a great chance for for um my wife in particular and me to just go and sort of have culinary adventures at home and so um yeah, I, I think that 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 mindset is is key. You know that obviously you have to come back and acclimate and become an efficient member of your own hometown. But if you can never let that travel die, if you can sort of let that curiosity and that excitement about place live on in your travels at home, then then your journey never really ends. Uh, and I say sometimes that after I took my first vagabonding trip at age. Um, 23, which is more than half a lifetime ago for me, in a certain sense, I'm still on that trip. Um, I like to think that I'm that I never fully finished that journey because it sort of it broke open this travel part of myself and it eliminated that separation between my travel self and my home self. And it's not always perfect. I'm not always the best traveler at home, and sometimes I I can be completely you know caught up in my routines. But if I can try to remember those good moments, sort of put traveling conversation with home, and a lot of a lot of the vagabonds away is about that, then um, then I can continue that back home. And is is home New Jersey for you, Andrew? Yes, you can see the it's the Rutgers. Yeah, yeah. Isaiah Pacheco plays for the Chiefs. He's a, he's a Rutgers guy, I think. So that's crazy. I coached him when I worked for Rutgers. He was okay. the, uh, he was a my coach the strength team there. So. I, I haven't watched that much football lately, but when he popped up in the Super Bowl the other year, I was like, wait, I know that guy. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And I, I don't want to bring our our, our, um, our book club down the rabbit hole of football, but when I see Rutgers now, I think of uh, 
of a of a, a very fast back for uh, for the Kansas City Chiefs. So, and uh, Rolf, you touched on this because you mentioned your um your first vagabonding trip half a lifetime ago. I like that phrase, and I'd I'd highlighted one of the one of the quotes here to to, to talk about in a sort of retrospective way, and and you. On October 21st, you you quoted Michael Crichton. Often I go to some distant region of the world to be reminded of who I am. And I wonder if after all those years of travel, if that's still true, firstly, and if that has changed at all. You know, you talk about or people talk about traveling in their 20s or or late teens or whatever as as finding themselves don't they and there's an assumption with that then oh i've now found myself that's that done that's fine you know <laughs> i wonder if the if the epiphanies continue have continued with you or if they've become different or if they've changed i don't know yeah how how has that changed no they they become different uh and yet one one great thing about travel when you're young is everything is so exciting i think I, in thinking in october i i uh, I quote Patrick Lee Fermer, who walked across Europe when he was about 19, I think. Of course, he wrote that book. I think he was in his 50s when he wrote that book. So it was very much a retrospective conversation with his younger self. Um, but I think that I, I don't know if I've talked about it in this book club. I think I've talked about it in my podcast of first half of life versus second of half of life values. And um, uh, Richard Rohr, the spiritual writer, says that in the first half of life, you're sort of creating the vessel that is your life. And then in the second half of life, you fill that vessel with the actual content of your life. And so in a certain sense, the second half of life is pretty awesome because you know who you are, you know where you're headed. And then you're just, you're being, you're trying to be the best version of yourself that you can be. I think, I think travel was so important for me in my twenties. And I really, I really met a truer version of myself as a traveler. Then I wrote about travel and then a lot of people read started reading my books in a sense that I'm, I'm sort of echoing as the travel writer guy who talks about travel a lot. I, I keep a nodding familiarity, familiar, familiarity with my younger self, just because I'm often talking about him um, with travelers who are new to travel and are excited about travel. But I think it never stops being new and exciting. Um, and I'm just thinking like the last couple of years I've traveled with my wife, Kiki, you know, we, we haven't been married that long. And I think you learn that's another way of learning about yourself through travel is just the way you interact with uh, someone you love and you've been with uh, as a traveler too. And so I think you never stop learning at its best. You never stop learning those lessons of travel. You never start seeing these pure and, and maybe more vulnerable versions of yourself reflected back as you travel. Um, because if you can just be open again, the M word mindset, if you can be open in, in that way, um, then you can you can meet that pure version of yourself uh, on the road. Ideally, you can take him home too, but uh, you meet him on the road. And I wonder with this, because you're in quite a unique situation, having sort of, I don't want to having having sort of written books for various stages of your life over the last however many years, I wonder if when you flick through one of those older books, be it Vagabonding or Marco Polo didn't go there or whatever, because in fact, some of those, the Marco Polo book particularly, you have essays from quite a long time prior to the publication of that book, I think. Do you recognize that young man on the road as yourself? Or do you think, whoa, this person is, I wouldn't do that now. Or what a, what a, you know, <laughs> what a such and such for, for, for behaving in that way or thinking that thing or, or doing it in that way. Uh, yes to both. Yes to both. <laughs> um, 
And I, I think sometimes I had to remind myself to be kind to the younger version of myself. Um, and, you know, in Marco Polo didn't go there. Sometimes I show the knucklehead version of myself because as an authorial voice that the knucklehead is more entertaining for the reader and maybe more relatable. None of us travel as perfect people. And so I try not to get too judgmental about this, this more impetuous and, and maybe slightly dumber version of myself that, uh, that shows up in my books. Um, and so it's so it's fun. It, it, it's been a real privilege as a traveler to uh, not only have my own travel experiences, but to have written about them and to have have conversations with people who've responded to that writing. And so, in a certain sense, I can't. And this happens a lot because vagabonding is and probably will be my most successful book. You know that often people. They, they want to talk to about, about any number of books, but usually they want to get back to vagabonding. And that was written by a much younger version of myself, you know? And, I, and so I have to remember that dude, I feel like I'm smarter than that dude who was 30 years old, but he had some wisdom that still resonates with people. And so it's, it's fun to see. And, uh, and so even as we all become deeper travelers and we all become more experienced and we learn hard lessons and we become more mature, uh, sometimes it's, it's good to recognize that there is some wisdom that comes with youth and that sometimes you can meet a 20 year old, uh, in, a, in the other side of the world, be it a local person or, uh, a fellow traveler and realize that they, they see things in a way that maybe you've ceased seeing things. And so I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of not being, um, too prejudicial against age. You know, I think that a 75-year-old can can lend a wonderful insight on the opposite side of the world. <laughs> Renee, Renee, I see is is uh is uh backing me up on that. And then the 19-year-old th the same way. So um it's just it's just fun and I think travel a lot. And in fact, travel is an environment where oftentimes 70-year-olds will hang out with 28-year-olds in a way that is not bound by family or social environments. And Renee is nodding because she's been in my Paris classes and she's hung out with people who are considerably younger than her. So that's what a big blessing of travel. I should write about that more. Just the idea that um, hanging out with people of different ages is part of the joy of travel is that suddenly you can be hanging out with someone who's in their 60s or their 30s or their teens that you wouldn't hang out with at home. And suddenly it's like, this person is super interesting and cool. And I'm glad that I'm spending this hour of my life with them. So- I was quite curious, are there any special routines or practices or ceremonies that you've discovered on your own travels um, that you've incorporated into your daily or, or weekly life or even you know seasonal life back home? Um, and if so, uh, I would love to uh, hear your own thoughts on how you see those adoptions of routines and ceremonies um, playing into slow travel. Mm. As you asked the question, I thought, "Ooh, do I have a routine?" You know, like it's like, "Oh, it'd be cooler if I had a routine," and I could I give him a very concrete answer. I think that um, walk until your day becomes interesting, which people repeat back to me a lot, has be, is my routine. It's just that default as a play a way of getting to know a place, despite all of your planning. That's also something that can play uh, play out at home. As it's gotten colder here in Kansas, I've become really bad about walking until my day becomes interesting. I need need to be better about that. Um, and then I think just sort of embracing curiosity. Um, and I, you, I use the word ceremony, which I love, and I'm going to have to think about that more, maybe not in this conversation, but I'm going to have to internalize that and think about ceremonies because I think rituals in general, uh, in general serve us in life, you know, um, rituals are part of religious life around the world. And there's a reason why that is it, it sort of 
it's they sort of focus us in a certain way. And in 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 a distracted environment like travel, rituals and ceremonies are a good thing. But I I don't know if I would have anything these any of these practices would be a ceremonies necessarily. But really trying to embrace curiosity um is is another thing that I try to bring back again and again. Um just as a default, walk and tell you today becomes interesting or ask a question or really take a really curious interest in the smallest details around you and see if you can get help to figure that out. And one, uh, a couple of travelers that I give props to in my book are my parents who didn't have a passport until their son had one. And I traveled with them and, but they're public school teachers. And so they, they've made a life of trying to instill curiosity in their students. And it is, that's a travel skill that I try to harness that I was a pretty experienced traveler by the time I started traveling with them. And they were a little alarmed by what they were seeing in China and Mongolia when I was with them, but they just, they always defaulted to curiosity. And I think that's a good thing on the road. And again, we've talked a lot about home in this conversation. That's a great thing to default to at home as well. Just be curious about what you think you already know. Well, I got a question. So my, my wife and I have uh, recently started traveling, uh, been to the Caribbean, to Mexico, spent 17 days in Europe over the summer. And one of the things that I, I, I found fairly interesting and thought was intriguing is when you talk to people in the, in the local areas who are from these places, it seems like we're much more similar in the goals we have, the dreams we have for our families, the things we're striving for on a day-to-day basis. But maybe the thing that is different is simply the place in the world we come from or the cultural or socially accepted norms in the places we're from. Have you found that to be fairly similar or something similar as you've traveled? I'm I'm with your assessment of the situation. I think that often, like I, when I was in Nairobi earlier this year, I hung out with a bunch of middle-class Kenyans. Um, And this is a good piece of travel advice. If in doubt, find like, the middle class of wherever country you're in, you know, find the hiking club or the cooking club or something, because it's really fun to meet people who maybe are from a, a, a similar socioeconomic background. I think that the, the traveling class in the U S is dominated by the middle class. Um, and so I found that there were a lot of similarities. Yeah. They had goals, they had ambitions, but then also there's this aspect of Kenyan culture that I'm still trying to wrap my head around, which at the end of the day is best described by joy. There's just a little bit less of a goal-oriented attitude. It's almost like something is not quite worth doing unless there's an aspect of joy to it. And so Kenyan culture, I found, is a little bit slower in a way that might fly in the face of American middle-class ideas of efficiency. But just embracing that joy, which is culturally, like a cultural wisdom of Kenyan culture, is a cool thing to see. And I think almost any culture you go in the world you're going to find things that are unique to that culture. Like oftentimes when I travel in Muslim cultures, um, hospitality is just off the charts that literally it is a part of Muslim. It's one of the five pillars of Islam hospitality, which reflects really, really well on travelers is that you're from another place and they usually are curious about you. Um, yeah, so I, I completely agree that uh, people are people, but people are also culturally unique. I, I have a chapter in the October section of the book where I talk about how um, there's some cultures wouldn't really think of a storyteller as a novelist with a celeb- who's a celebrity who writes books, that stories are shared by community. I think that many parts of the world, stories are not the creation of a single individual, but they're they're shared among people 
uh, of a similar culture. And so I think realizing that there are cultural differences that are worth acknowledging uh, is something to keep in mind as travelers. Otherwise, we're just sort of judging it on the basis of our own experiences. I'm curious, do you have a specific experience where you sort of found yourself waiting outside of your cultural waters? No, I wouldn't say necessarily waiting outside of cultural waters. It's just it's just interesting in watching watching people inside their you know their culture or their environment, and me being an outsider, maybe going in with the anticipation or an expectation of maybe what I'm going to see or what things are going to seem like. But then when you watch them and you talk to them, they're all doing the same things that we may do in our own hometowns. It just is. There's a maybe a socially accepted or a culturally accepted norm in the way that they do that. But I just I felt like when when you talk to some folks and you find out how they interact within their culture and the, their families and things like that, they're typically striving for the same things we are. They just may speak a different language or their culture may they may have a different ritual or, or some socially accepted norm that may be slightly different than what is normal to us. But at the end of the day, we're all trying for the same thing and and trying to strive for the same things. I just I just found that as we've traveled, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think there's so many basic things as as people, like family is important everywhere in the world. Food is important everywhere in the world. And that and that lunch you have in Italy might last a lot longer than lunch in the US, but it's still sort of a social ritual of, of sharing a meal. And so this is a good part of uh, our our traveler's toolkit for all of us, you know, just sort of default, default on those very simple human pleasures. And um, family is going to be something people respond to. Um, and food is going to be something people respond to work and ambitions. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a great default. And I think sometimes it's under discussed in the, in the travel journalism world. We, we only talk about consumer experiences, things, things to buy, uh, and, and less about these relationships that can, that can, um, or these experiences that come out of very simple relationships that we discover along the way and finding these similarities. One of the problems that us long-term nomads have is that when you're traveling with somebody else, they'd like to have things booked in advance. But the nomad in oneself still finds it very hard to book things in advance. And you still have that mindset, let the road provide. For discussion, how does one change or modify that mindset from booking things in advance to letting the rope provide? I think it might be a little bit of an impossible change for some of us, but I think that's something that's born out of experience. I think when we're novice travelers, we we default on over planning, we involve, default on over booking. And one simultaneous advantage and disadvantage of travel in this day and age is that you really can plan almost every aspect of your trip in advance. When I was a young backpacker in the late 1990s, I would just wander through town until I found a hotel. I didn't have the option to book online. Um, now it's 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 the default, and I and I confess that I book in advance online far more than I used to. But I think you touch on something that you know, as a nomad, as someone who's traveled a lot more, you you realize you can let go a little bit. You can let, let things open to chance, and sometimes you might forgo a little bit of comfort and convenience. But it's that serendipity and surprise, and just the idea that suddenly you're staying in somebody's uncle's guest house rather than a hotel. You know, suddenly you're at, you're at a wedding where somebody invites you to sleep on the floor of the kitchen of their restaurant or whatever. You know. 
those are really special and they're not always, they don't always lend themselves towards comfort or convenience, but they're born out of a travel experience. And so I think some people, I think just are, are travel in such a way that they really need to be planners and that's part of their own comfort ritual. But as travelers, the more experienced we are, ideally the more comfortable we can with letting go of those expectations. And I, I don't want to be a snob about it, but I really do want to gently encourage people as travelers to just open themselves up to more spontaneous ways of planning things like hotels and, and even where to go in a, in a country. So yeah, you bring up a, a good question. Perhaps that's one of the ways where technology has made this a lot easier, isn't it? Because you can see ahead of time in, you know, you're on the train to such and such a town and you can see, oh, all the hotels are booked in this town. I'll wait for the next one or I'll know what it is. You know, you can, it, it there's, there's a bit of a safety net there, isn't it? Than, than perhaps 20 years ago when you, you'd have to wander around the town until the late evening to realize that there's nowhere to stay. <laughs> yeah. And I think even people who come into town and everything is booked, I, I, I very rarely hear from travelers who, who sleep in a horseshoe pit in the local park. You know, <laughs> I mentioned that specifically because I did that once in Colorado, but, um, and that was, that was just because I was cheap. Actually, it wasn't because there were no hotels, um, but actually just finding creative ways to, to account for the fact that there aren't necessarily hotels. You just ask around and pretty soon somebody is like, Oh yeah, well, my uncle has a spare room. Do you have 20 bucks? You know, you can, you can stay at my uncle's place. Um, and so I think that sometimes we don't give our permission, ourselves permission as travelers to be, to improvise, uh, and, and to really make use of the social capital and the resources that we find when we come to a place and people are curious about us. Um, and, 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 and again, I think the more we travel, the more we're willing to be, to take those risks that aren't really risks at all. They're just sort of planning less and, and, and letting serendipity guide the trip as much as anything. This has been the Season 5 finale of Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including how to sign up for the final session of the Vagabond's Way Online Book Club, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>